0: All right, hey, go ahead and have a seat and we're going to get started. Hey, if we haven't met yet, uh, I didn't introduce myself earlier. My name is Justin, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Icon. It is great to have you. Uh, As I mentioned before, we are a relatively new church, just a couple months old, and uh, and it's uh, it's great to have you. So thanks for being here uh, with us. We uh, since we started meeting weekly in March, um, have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we started at the very beginning and uh, went through the first four chapters uh, until Easter and then jumped ahead to 1 Corinthians 15, which is about resurrection. We spent about five weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, talk about resurrection and heaven and all the implications of that. And then um, we are, so now we're jumping back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which is going to be fun. We are going to spend the next five or six weeks um, looking at relationships. And and I mean this in the kind of broadest sense of the word. Um, Our whole series we're calling the Gospel-Formed Church. And the idea behind that is that um, we, as a church, want to be formed by the gospel right? Every community, every organization, every group of people is kind of formed culturally by something or things. And we want at ICON from the very, very beginning to be very intentional about wanting to be formed by the gospel. There are a lot of things vying for our formation that want to kind of shape us as individuals and shape us as a community into various things. Uh, Usually things want to form us into their own image. And And we want to be shaped by the gospel. And so we are looking at 1 Corinthians not because uh, the church represented here is like a model congregation, quite the opposite as we will see tonight. Uh, But what we read as we go through 1 Corinthians is Paul um, addressing each and every one of the issues that they are facing and bringing them back to uh, the truth of the gospel. So um, we have talked about uh, gospel-formed identity, gospel-formed future, and this little mini-series we're doing now is uh, we're calling gospel-formed relationships. So um, we're gonna look at some really interesting, fun, and kind of sexy topics like church discipline, uh and uh and conflict resolution. We're gonna then look at some really kind of boring stuff like sexuality, marriage, singleness, those kinds of things uh as we go through the next three chapters uh of First Corinthians. So you can kinda read ahead. I encourage you to read ahead actually uh if you want to do that. So here's what I want to do tonight. Um I wanna read the passage and, and before I read the passage want to just prepare you by saying these next couple chapters are going to be challenging, um, not because they're trying to be challenging, not because they, uh, you know, are speaking to this totally different culture that we're not aware of. These next three chapters were really challenging to first century Roman Jewish Christians, right? So these chapters have been challenging for always, right so they are challenging to us in ways that they weren't challenging to their original hearers and they're easy for us in ways that they were challenging to their original hearers so what's interesting about the bible and kind of some of the the genius of the bible is it manages to offend everyone always it's really i, I it's kind of like me. It's, uh, it just manages, no matter the situation, to say something that everybody's not going to like. And so, um, like I said, some of the things that will stand out to us would not have stood out to its original hearers and then vice versa. The stuff that bothered them won't bother us. And I think that that's important because uh, the Bible has Uh, been powerful and successful and borne fruit in literally every corner of the world. And it has both affirmed and challenged every culture, every time, every people in slightly different ways because the gospel is not easy for anyone to affirm right? And so as we read this, I want you to pay attention to the parts of this section that offend your sensibilities or challenge you at a practical level. You think, man, that, I, I get it, but that seems really hard. Or I don't get it, that seems wrong. And I want you to pay attention to those things. And, and if you have doubts about the passage, I want you to do yourself a favor and just for a moment, doubt your doubts, right? At least ask the question, are my doubts legit? Where do my doubts come from? If I'm offended about something, ask yourself, why am I offended by this thing? And at least kind of be intellectually honest enough to to kind of push down on all the areas of offense or doubt or frustration that you may have with this passage and certainly the passages to come. So with all that being said, let's read together 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to do all of chapter 5 tonight. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. So I've been hinting that this is not a congregation we want to model ourselves after. This is a great example. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Jesus, these are hard words for us to hear for a number of reasons not the least of which is that we are all keenly aware of the evil that resides inside of us. So there's a part of us that wonders, will we be purged one day? Will Paul turn his sights on us at some point and suggest or command the church to throw us out? So this this is a hard word for us, Lord, and I I pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes to hear your heart, to be able to connect and understand this passage the way you have for us. And, Lord, that the, the places that are challenging to us, convicting to us, Lord, that your spirit would do its work, that we would not feel condemnation, but we would feel conviction. That where you mean to affirm and encourage that, your your spirit would do that, that our hearts would be affirmed and encouraged. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, this passage is immensely countercultural. So I think the first thing that we really have to do is make sure we understand what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. So at least if we're going to be offended and ignore or reject the passage, at least let's reject it on its own merits, right? Let's not reject what it's not saying. Let's reject what it is saying, at least, okay? So here's what it's saying. Christian communities should disassociate from unrepentantly sinful Christians. That's the thesis. That Christian communities, the churches in particular, should disassociate, should disconnect with relationally, willfully unrepentant Sinful Christians. Okay, and so what is it not saying? It is not saying that if someone in your church sins, that you should kick them out. It's not what it's saying, because then be, there'd be none of us left, right? Except maybe Cliff. Cliff. Cliff's pretty solid. It's not saying that, and in various other places, Paul himself even says, I don't do what I want to do, and the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, those are the things I keep doing, so in no way is this suggesting that if somebody sins, they should be kicked out. It's not what it's saying at all. That if there is somebody in this congregation who is willfully, knowingly, and unrepentantly sinning in such a heinous way, and that there is no no sense of conviction, no sense of repentance, no sense that they want to change and and fall kind of uh, in line with God's vision for their life, that that is then the kind of person that the church should disassociate from. Now, this sounds hard and maybe harsh, but there are versions of this that we are very familiar with, right? In our culture, we see versions of this. What's interesting about our culture is um, our culture often tries to do two things at one time, which is one, that there is a great kind of permissiveness, uh, especially in the area of sexuality. In a place like Seattle, there's a large amount of permissiveness on one hand and kind of a laissez-faire attitude of like, hey, yeah, you do you, whatever you want to do, you just do that. And at the same time, almost with the other fist, um, there is like uh, a, a a very strong online, especially what we might call canceling culture I'm too old to really understand what that is, but I read about it this week and uh, and it seems as if when somebody does something or says something that goes against this kind of ethos of permissiveness, there are groups of people who will decide to just reject them, cancel them, no longer support them, that they are no longer on team us, whatever team us might be. So it's kind of an odd and hard thing to totally figure out and try to track with, but everything's okay unless you do the one thing that's not okay, which is to say that not everything's okay. And that that's challenging to keep up with all the time but uh, as I see online and watch the Twitters and stuff I'm kind of figure out like okay as long as you're cool with everybody you're cool but if you're not cool with everybody then you're out which seems hypocritical but you know that's another sermon Another version of this that probably we've experienced, if not firsthand, certainly we've heard stories or secondhand, thirdhand third-hand knowledge, is in churches a version of what Paul is saying, which is closer to somebody does something wrong, they do the thing that this church community says is not okay, and they are immediately shunned and kicked out or just socially kind of ostracized. And so as a pastor, I hear about this stuff all the time. People come to our church or other churches that I've led in the past and go, well, I was burned by this other church, or I was really hurt by this other church, or I was shunned by this church. And, you know, you start to ask, well, man, what happened? And said, well, you know, I did this. I did this sin. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't welcome there anymore. And maybe it wasn't explicitly said, but I definitely felt like I wasn't welcome. And what's interesting about those two things, the worldly version of it and the churchy version or the religious version of it, is that they're not altogether different. right? So the worldly version says, hey, everything's cool and everybody's cool unless you say not everything's cool and then you're not cool and the church version of it is as long as you say you're a christian you're with us you're good and we believe in salvation by grace and it's about grace and mercy and love until you do a thing that we don't like and then you're out and neither of those things to be very very clear neither of these things are what paul's talking about here absolutely not The gospel is consistently a third way between what the world communicates and what religion or religious thinking communicates. The gospel is consistently a third way of looking at it, not a happy medium, not some kind of version of something in between, but a completely different way of thinking about it altogether, and that's what we see here. So Paul is going to make an argument in this chapter for what I'll call redemptive discipline. Redemptive discipline. And there are three purposes that that he has outlined here for this redemptive purposes or redemptive discipline. One is that we do redemptive discipline for the sake of the world. That we do redemptive discipline for the sake of the sinner. And we do redemptive discipline for the sake of the church. For the world, for the sinner, and for the church. So let's start back in verse 1 redemptive discipline for the world. He says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. And let's be clear, it was and probably remains today pretty difficult to offend the sexual sensibilities of ancient Rome, but this guy managed it, right? Like there's like three things you can't do and he picked one of them. Everything else was cool, right? He says, for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant about it. Ought you not rather to mourn? Paul is concerned with the church's reputation with outsiders. This is a consistent uh, theme of Paul's writing in 1 Thessalonians 4.12. He tells them to act in such a way that will earn the respect of outsiders. Later in 1 Corinthians, we'll see that some of his teaching about how the church is supposed to function is done so that it makes sense outsiders. Paul is always kind of keenly aware of how outsiders are looking at and understanding the church, like what is our testimony with them. But there's a tension here that's not obvious which way the church is always supposed to go. So there's some kind of uh, well-known examples of ways in which the church seems to have failed to live up to the expectations of the wider world. There's, on the one hand, uh, kind of a, a testimony of hypocrisy. We see this uh, in the, the Catholic Church with all that is going on with sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Uh, there has been covering up. There has been uh, uh, you know a- outright quieting of victims. There has been uh, certain priests who have actually been given promotions and celebrated in spite of the fact that everyone knew that some of this stuff was going on on and it feels as if the wider world has looked at that hypocrisy and and it absolutely is hypocrisy and said gosh that that's terrible we the, the church should never have done that can you believe that the catholic church would would have covered up this kind of sexual abuse and so i look at that stuff and go okay yeah that's that seems right like that seems like the right response that the world would have and yet There is this other side that the church is sometimes uh, accused of being judgmental. So we... um there perhaps is some behavior uh, within the church that is kind of an ongoing thing that is in rejection of the Bible in really clear ways. And the church moves, and let's just say, for instance, that they do it really gently and really graciously and really well, but they put down limits and go, listen, there's a reason we are a Bible formed religion. Like we are a faith born out of the scriptures, and the scriptures are really clear that here's the box. And if this behavior is out, outside the box or inside the box, it's, it's honestly really clear. And so even if in the greatest of gentleness and graciousness, we were to say actually that kind of behavior falls outside of the bounds of scripture, that the outside world then calls it being judgmental. And so there's a challenge here for the church to do this, to kind of thread this needle in a way that is faithful to the scripture and then also um, kind of endears the respect of the outside world. And I think there's two things that are important. One is consistency and two is gentleness. So we see in uh, the gospel of Matthew, actually, that Jesus spoke to this very issue. And I know that for some of us who are new to the faith or we're here and we're not Christians at all, sometimes the Bible is this mishmash of like, who's saying what? and I don't know what's going on. So sometimes it's helpful to go back to Jesus because everybody's heard of that guy at least. You may not know who Paul is or John is, but we all know who Jesus is. And so here's what Jesus says about this issue in Matthew chapter 18. He says, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's step one. there's sin in your brother, that you would go to him alone and say, Hey, I see this. You've sinned against me in this way, or I've seen sin in your life in this way. It's just between you and me. We're talking about it, and we're going to him to, to kind of point that out. He says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And it's very clear that that's the goal here for Jesus. That we would, in the midst of sin, breaking down a relationship, be able to go to someone and go, hey, this uh, this is not good. And we need to fix this. And he says, if he listens, you've gained your brother back. And that's the win. But if not... But if he does not listen, take one or two other people along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? That seems fair. That doesn't, we don't want it to be like, well, I don't like what you're doing, so I'm going to come and call it sin. There at least needs to be probably two or three other people who would see the same behavior and go, yeah, man, like that's, that's not good. That's not healthy. That's not in line with Scripture. That's not what Jesus modeled for us. Like, Yeah, this is sin, that we would kind of be able to agree on that it says, uh, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Here's basically what Jesus says. If you see sin in a a brother, in a Christian, in a fellow Christian, go to them out of love for them in hopes that they would repent, own the sin, and that you guys would be reunited. And if that doesn't happen, that step two isn't to keep banging on it with that person, but to bring community, friends, people who can come together and go, hey man, like we love you, or hey, Girl, we love you, and, and, and we, want, we want the best for you. And we know like God has given us a blueprint for who we're supposed to be and who he's made us to be. Man, repent, and, and let's, let's help each other. Let's be in this together. And if the person is still unrepentant, then we go to the church, not to tattle on them, but because the way the church is supposed to function is as a body, as a family. These are the metaphors that the scriptures give us for what we're supposed to be together. So that we're supposed to bring the family, have a family meeting and go, man, we love you. And we're all here for you in support of you. The the goal is reconciliation. The goal is restoration. And that if still they are unrepentant, then Jesus says, treat them like a, a tax collector or a Gentile, which means what? Hate them, mock them, scorn them. No, love them. But the relationship's going to be different. Care for them, reach out to them, be with them. But the, rela- the, the function of the relationship, the, the nature of the relationship will be different. Right? So this is, this is Jesus's kind of uh, uh, recipe for reconciliation. Paul in Galatians 6 tells us, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So Paul, here in another section, addressing the same issue, goes, listen, when you go to this other brother who's sinning or this other sister who's sinning, go to them with humility because you're not better than them, right? Right? It says, bear one another's burdens, be watchful uh, lest you be tempted because you're no stronger than they are and, and no less likely to be tempted to sin than they are. So go to them with a spirit of gentleness, with a spirit of humility, a spirit that would desire reconciliation and restoration. So that's what the scriptures kind of outline for us. And I, and I would hope, and I think what I know is, that no matter what we do, no matter how we do it, even imperfectly, there's not going to be a version of us saying, man, we expect all of the church to adhere to biblical standards of, of life and, and decision-making and all these kinds of things, that the world unanimously is going to go, all right, great job, guys. Great job, church. You really held them accountable well. That's, that can't be our expectation. But I think what Paul's expectation is, and, and what our expectation should be, is that we can do this in such a way that the outside world might say, hey, I disagree with where where y'all draw the lines. I disagree with what what the you know what the scriptures call flourishing and what the scriptures call sin. I disagree with those lines, but man, at least the way you did it was consistent. Meaning you're not giving preferential treatment to, to some people over others. You're not giving preferential treatment to some sins over others. And you've done this in a spirit of, you know, care and love in the context of community and spirit of gentleness and all of this. Like, I, I disagree with what, what kind of how you call balls and strikes and what's sin and what's life. But man, I can't disagree with your desire for them. And that, man, I think is a, a testimony to the world of like, listen, we we. We actually believe sin is sin in the church. We believe there is such a thing as sin, that there are things that are good and there are things that are bad, and that we're kind of unashamed of that. But the way in which we go about calling people back into the life of Christ has to be done with great humility and care and gentleness and a desire for restoration. And I think that is a testimony for the world that would be very powerful. Number two. That we do redemptive discipline for the sinner. Verse three. He says, "Paul says, for though present, or so, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man uh, to Satan." for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, a couple things. First, Paul is kind of reestablishing two things. One, his apostolic authority in the church, that he started this church and that he is still kind of an authority there with them. And he's saying basically, in the absence of you all stepping up and being able to say the simple thing like, hey, the guy sleeping with his mother-in-law, that's probably out of line, right? Like if 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 none of y'all can say that, let me be the one to say that. And then he says, and remember, by the power of our Lord Jesus, which should remind us of what Jesus said in Matthew 18, that they would come to this man not by their own authority or whatever, but and not even ultimately by Paul's authority, but they would come to this man by the authority of Jesus and say, listen, Jesus gave us a process for this. Jesus laid out for us how we're to love one another back into restored relationship. Okay, so that's the first thing he says. Then it gets more difficult. He tells them to deliver this man to Satan. And that's crazy, right? Like that's a that's a crazy sounding thing. I don't, I mean, if you took it super literally, I'm not even sure what that would mean, if he has an address that we're delivering to, or I, I don't know. But Paul uses this same phrase in a couple of different places. Um, one of which is in 1 Timothy 2. 1, uh, which I'm going to uh, turn to really quickly. If you got your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy 1. I'm just going to read this section very quickly to, to kind of get the context. So in verse 18 of 1 Timothy 1, he says, "'This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience.'" By rejecting this, this faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, you may think, what was it that, that Hymenaeus and Alexander didn't believe rightly that Paul is calling them blasphemers, which means to say, like, to, to teach something uh, that rejects the authority of God. Like, what could it be that they just, that Hymenaeus and Alexander just could not get on board with and were teaching the opposite of? Well, we see in the passage right before us, so back in verse 12. Paul, again, to Timothy says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an, ins- an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So what Hymenaeus and Alexander were rejecting was the gospel In this message that Paul, who's saying, I was the worst of all the sinners and God graciously saved me, mercifully saved me, not because I was great and deserved it, but because God is great and showed great patience with me. In fact, he says, I think God saved me, the foremost of all sinners, just as an example of his patience and his grace and his love and his power to save anybody. Paul, who murdered Christians, who literally hunted down Christians to kill them, God saved him. Which is a a demonstration of his great mercy and patience and love and grace and power to save. And it was something about that that Hymenaeus and Alexander were like, nah, can't get on board with that. So Paul goes, listen, I handed them over to Satan, which simply means like, go. If you can't get on board with that, Just go and see what the ends of your behavior are. See what the ends of your theology might be. See where it leads you. I'm no longer going to try to restrain you. I'm no longer going to try to kind of woo you back to the faith, woo you back to the community. I'm just going to let you go and see what happens. And he says back in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, right? This, this word in the Greek is "sarks," and it's the, it's, just the, it's the fleshly desire. It's not that he wants this guy to die a physical death, but he's saying, listen, here's my hope, that we let this guy go and go, hey, man, it, you're sleeping with your mother-in-law. If you can't see that that's wrong, then have at it. See where it gets you. One of my favorite passages in Romans chapter 6, Paul asks the Romans a rhetorical question. He says, "Um, what fruit were you getting from the behavior about which you are now ashamed? What was the fruit of all that? Because now you look back and you're ashamed of your behavior, but where did it get you? This is Paul, in, in, a, in a sense, saying to this man, listen, we came to you once. We brought witnesses. We came with you. Came to you as a church. We followed Jesus' uh, 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 kind of pre- his prescription for how to restore somebody. And, and you still want to do it. You still want to sleep with your mother-in-law. And you want to do this thing and you're arrogant about it. Go. See what happens. Do You think this is going to lead to a flourishing life? Man, have at it. So that, he says, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, I'm glad we kind of did the First Corinthians 15 stuff before we did this stuff so that we wouldn't have any kind of uh, delusion about um, this some sort of dichotomy between flesh and spirit that God's gonna burn up his body and save some like ethereal spirit thing. We know better now, right? We've all mastered a theology of heaven the last couple of weeks and we know that we are gonna be resurrected physical, that God is resurrecting us as we are and just kind of restoring us to his vision for what we were meant to be from the very beginning. So what Paul is saying here is, listen, if this guy wants to live this way and do this thing, fine. At this point, let him go. Treat him like you would a tax collector or sinner or Gentile, which is to say that you will love him as a non-Christian. That you would reach out to him. That you would befriend him but that you wouldn't have the kind of relationship you would have with him if he were a believer. And we saw that in um, 9 through 13, where he says not to even eat with such a person and, and this is a kind of a middle eastern thing that's harder for us to understand because i eat with a lot of crazy people um mostly y'all and and that doesn't mean the same thing that sitting to have a meal having someone in your home was a was a it suggested relationship at a at a, at a deeper level so paul's going listen we've we've just got to treat them differently now and let him kind of be turned over so that he might be saved so that he might see the fruit of that behavior, realize how destructive it actually is and repent of it, that he'd be faced with the reality of those life decisions. What God wants most of all for all of us is to be in relationship with him, to love and be loved by him. And there are no links that God won't go nor ask his people to go. In order to redeem and reconcile broken relationship, God will use gentleness. He will use persuasion. He will use grace. He will use mercy. He will use tenderness and love and discipline and hardship and suffering. There is nothing that God won't do to restore you back to relationship. Uh, C.S. Lewis, very famously in The Problem of Pain, said we can ignore pleasure and the blessing of pleasure that God gives us, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that's Paul's hope for this man, that the pain of being turned over, to being delivered to Satan, to reaping what he is sowing in terms of this relationship would be a megaphone to rouse his deaf ears, to awaken his dead heart to his sin. Number three, that we would partake of redemptive discipline for the sake of the church. Verse six, He says, your boasting is not good, which is a hilarious understatement. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, or the whole loaf, depending on your translation, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Now, I had to research this, because I'm not a baker okay but apparently what's happening here is that um, in the olden days and this is not about yeast because apparently yeast was not very common so the commentary said um, but what would happen is that um, they would have a, a leavening agent in a loaf of bread in the dough and that they would make bread from that and they would save out a, a, a piece of leavened of the leaven and kind of perpetuate it into the next round of dough and over and over and over and then kind of take a piece, add it to the next one, and it would last around a year, but over time it would sour. And so every year they would clean out all the leaven and erase erase it all, start from scratch. And so this became kind of a metaphor in Israel especially. And so it's connected deeply, and I don't have time to go too far into it, but it's connected deeply to the Passover and that God told the people of Israel to take with them unleavened bread that it would bake quickly and that they would escape uh, the wrath of God at, at the Passover. So Paul is kind of speaking to his Jewish audience here and reminding them of, uh, of their tradition and their story. The point is that just a little bit of something, just a little bit of leaven in this case, can spoil or can affect the whole loaf, right? So um, uh, another version of this would be if you have a water bottle and you just get a tiny bit of toilet water in the water bottle, it spoils the whole thing, right? And now, you may be thinking, why did you think of that? And I would say, because I have a one-year-old uh, son who has discovered the toilet. And, um, and so, three times this week, we went in and he was covered, splashing once with the plunger, um, with all the toilet water. And, I, and the first time it was a lot, and so there was no question it was spoiled. The second time it was just a little bit, and it kind of gotten maybe on his chin a little. And I'm like, ah, it was just a little. And the look on my wife's face said to me, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. She didn't say that exactly, but that was, that was kind of the vibe. She's a pastor's wife. You know, a lot of biblical metaphors at my house. But just a little bit of this thing can change the whole, right? And so he says, um, you really are unleavened for Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words... There was a former self, a former way of doing things that was marked by malice and evil. And there is a new way in Christ that is marked by sincerity and it is marked by truth. And so Paul is in some sense challenging the Corinthians saying, do we believe this stuff or not? Do we actually believe that Jesus was who he said he was? He taught what he taught. Have we actually been shaped? Have we actually given ourselves to him and his vision of life? Have we or have we not? Because if we have, we have and let's go. But if we have not, just say so. But this middling thing where we allow a little bit of sin into the church and we just decide we're okay with it is deeply problematic because over time, that grows and it grows and it grows because we allow one thing and then we say, well, if it's one thing, why not more? And and if we allow that sin, why not my sin? Because I don't want to do that sin, my mother-in-law, not my thing. But I've got this other thing. I've got this other thing that I'd like to do. And if that's okay, then why can't I do that thing and 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 that thing? And, that thing? and in, in order to do that, we have to go back down to our source material and rework the source material, which is the scripture. And so this is kind of the inevitable pattern that's happened in so many churches and in so many denominations and so many places over time, which starts with a cultural idea of well is that really wrong becomes is that really and that really and that really and if we're going to say none of this stuff is wrong well then we got to go back to the scriptures and really rethink the way we even engage the scriptures because we can't exactly say the scriptures are authoritative and say all of this stuff is okay and so we have a decision to make and often the decision is well then I guess the scriptures aren't authoritative and then it's all then it all changes. And this is Paul's argument, that logical end undermines scripture, and we end up with a version of Christianity that just reflects our desires. Um, Tim Keller is a pastor in Manhattan. He uses this illustration all the time, uh, and, and I love it, so I'm going to rip it off, but I'm going to at least say that I'm ripping it off, and so it's fine. Um But there was this movie in the 70s called The Stepford Wives, and then they remade it uh, more recently in the last decade or two. Um, And the basic story of The Stepford Wives is there's this little town in Connecticut called Stepford, Connecticut, And this couple moves from Manhattan to this town, and what they realize very quickly is that all the wives are impossibly beautiful and ridiculously obedient to their husbands. And so this um, one new wife starts to kind of get nervous about what's happening and suspicious. Well, it turns out that all of the men in this town have killed their wives and replaced them with very obedient robots. And so this is the suspicion of the whole thing. And I won't ruin the end for you, because it's actually, read the book, it's, it seems better. I haven't read it, but it seems better. When I've read about, when I've read about it, it seems better. Um, and, uh, and so I won't ruin the end, but suffice to say, if you think about those marriages that those men had with their wives... They they are only marriages in the air quote sense because there is no relationship where one half of the couple has no ability to disagree, no ability to push back, no ability to have any agency of one's own at all. And often when we do this kind of thing where we go, well, this, we're just going to be okay with this sin and that begets this sin and this one and this one and this one. And then after time, we've just kind of remade the faith to, to be a reflection of ourselves, to be a reflection of the culture, to be a reflection of whatever we want it to be. We have essentially created a Stepford God, a God who can't talk back to us, A God who can't disagree with us. A God who can never tell us we're wrong. A God who just magically and miraculously loves all the things we love, hates all the things and people we hate, and just constantly tells us how great and right we are. Which is to say, you have no kind of God at all. You have a deified picture of yourself. So, this is the danger for the church and, and why Paul would speak in such a way that is seems so harsh to expel this guy. Because here's the thing that I have found. I've been in ministry for almost 20 years now and one of the kind of consistent themes that I have learned is it's really hard to say no to people you love. It's really hard to say no to people you love. And it's really hard when somebody says, I want to do this and I think it's right and I think it's going to be okay and you know it's not, but you love them, it's really hard to go, no, that's not. That's not okay. And so in the name of relationship, in the name of love, in the name of avoiding conflict in the name of something, we say yes to things that the scriptures say no to. We say yes to things that Jesus very clearly says no to because we don't have the guts or the conviction or the right in our minds to say no to something that Jesus has already said no to. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, this is not, this is not your authority that you're going to this guy and saying, hey, this behavior is not okay. It's not even ultimately my authority says Says Paul. It's the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has laid this stuff down for us. The no we give is not an authoritative no, it's a reflection of an authoritative no. It's so go, man, we just can't do this. This is not what God has made us for. See, churches and people in general rarely do this. It's much easier to just shun and reject on one hand or affirm and celebrate or ignore on the other. Those those things are far easier than Paul's vision of redemptive discipline. How do we do this? I think the key to this actually happening, and, and I would say my hope that this would actually happen at Icon for decades to come. I think the hope is back in verse 2. After telling them what's going on and what's going wrong, he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Gospel-formed discipline requires mourning, not arrogance. Arrogance can sound like, look how open-minded we are, or it can sound like, look how pure we are. But the gospel causes us to mourn sin. First our own and then for those we love because we believe Jesus. We believe that he said that sin really is destructive. It's not just wrong and right in some kind of abstract moral sense, but it's genuinely destructive destructive so much so that the passover lamb was killed to deal with this destructive sin but this is the beauty of a passage like this one paul is not calling people to purity per se but to humble repentance about all of our collective need for god's forgiveness arrogance is the most dangerous sin here for Paul not sexual immorality hear that Paul's greatest concern here is the arrogance with which they are dealing with this situation not the sexual immorality itself why because sexual immorality is okay no but because it's inevitable There's always going to be sin in the community because we are human and we have desires that are disordered and they play out in a million different ways. Paul's problem with the church in Corinth isn't the sin, it's the arrogance about it that has allowed it to fester and remain, that they would be proud of their open mindedness or proud of, of their kind of inclusiveness in the community. That's what he's concerned with. The gospel undermines that kind of arrogance. When we see Jesus on the cross, we see that he was excluded just the same way that Paul calls this man to be excluded. That Jesus was excluded from the community on the cross. That he was shamed on the cross. That he was, in a sense, even excluded from the Father on the cross so that we could be included That the testimony of the cross is that there are no links to which God will not and has not gone to reconcile us back to himself. That there is no one who has taken sin more seriously than God. But the way in which he took it seriously was not to, in a thunderous voice from heaven, go, Stop sinning! Or I'll kill you all! This was not how he dealt with it that the way that Jesus demonstrated his seriousness about sin was to enter into life with us, to bear the full weight of it, to be excluded from the community, to be excluded from heaven, to be excluded from the Father, so that we could be included. So what makes this kind of so heinous in Paul's eyes is that this Christian, who has acknowledged the cross, who has accepted the death of Christ on his behalf, who has said, I I know what Christ has done and the, the great price that he paid for me. And I will take that price. I will take that cost. I will take that moment as license to keep doing whatever it is I want to do and to celebrate it and to actually undermine the very reason Christ went to the cross in the first place. And that this community was collectively saying, Jesus, I know you went to the cross to pay for sins like these, but instead of responding to that in faith and obedience, we're gonna respond to that by rejecting and then celebrating our our rejection of it. So Paul goes, that's the real problem here. And it's not until we are really broken by the brokenness of Christ on the cross. It is not until we really understand the degree to which Christ was excluded for sins like these, that we will see the power of this kind of redemptive exclusion as we have seen the the ultimate redemptive exclusion on the cross, that we might be willing to walk out lesser versions of it in our community for the sake of those who have sinned, for the sake of our testimony to the world, for the sake of our community that we would, as as a community, take this stuff so seriously. And that's hope, because we've seen the worst version of it, and the life and hope that it brought And that can give us assurance that doing it on the micro level will bring about that same redemptive hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross, for that moment of redemptive discipline that you underwent on our behalf. We paid this incredible price, bore the burden of all of our sin, so that we might be free of it, free of the condemnation for it, but free of the power of it, so that it would no longer have that kind of influence on our lives. God, I pray that we would walk in that freedom. Lord, you've paid for, paid the price, paid, we're free of it, Lord, But often we willingly step back into it, pretend as if we are still enslaved to sin. God, I pray that the, the effects, the destructive power of sin would weigh heavy on our hearts so that we would know it, we would see it, we would feel it so that when we see someone else walking down a similarly destructive path that we would care enough about them that we wouldn't love them a little and thus affirm whatever they're doing, but we would love them a lot and call them to repentance and call them to restoration. The way you loved us the most was not to sit from afar and just affirm whatever it was we wanted to do, but to enter in and pay a greater price than we could ever pay for another person. That's how much you loved us. Lord, burden our hearts with that story. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, as always, we'll transition to a time of response. will do this in a couple different ways. Pete will lead us in a couple more songs. Um, we'll take communion together. We'll give offering together. Um, but before we do any of that, We're going to take uh, just a couple of minutes in quiet reflection to think and pray, consider what we have heard tonight. So let's bow our heads together and do that.